Amen. That's a catchy little tune, isn't it? <clears throat> well, take your Bible. Turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Now, tonight I did have just a couple more of these jokes, which, of course, are for smart people. <clears throat> now, I know this morning there were a few faces that were perplexed. By the time we got to the end, it seemed that most people were really grasping these, okay? So that's pretty good. Obviously, you have a very intelligent church. They say the church folks are very much like their pastor. And so, <clears throat> very intelligent, obviously. Uh, very good. Good for you. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, this, this is going to be a little bit difficult, okay? So listen closely now. Here it is. You heard about the new band called 1,023 Megabits? They haven't had a gig. They haven't had any gigs yet. You got to be smart to know that. It's 100, it's 1,024 that makes a gig. Yeah, okay, so they haven't had any gigs yet. <clears throat> all right, well, all right, there you go. All right, that, you got to be smart. You got to be smart, you know what I mean? Now, uh, a linguist professor, you know, he says during a lecture that in English, a double negative forms a positive. But in some languages, such as Russian, a double negative is still a negative. However, in no language in the world can a double positive form a negative. But then a voice from the back of the room piped up and said, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll read you the explanation. Some of you are looking at me funny. It, it, it's, it's funny because yeah and right are technically affirmative words, but put these two positives together and you get a what? Ultra sarcastic, yeah, right. Okay, anyway, yeah, there you go. All right, so see, you got to be smart with these ones. These ones were pretty, pretty interesting, pretty tough. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, just one verse, and then we're going to take a look at a few things tonight. And uh, the Bible says in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, in verse 15, <clears throat> let me write this in real quick. There we go. I want to make sure I'm up to speed. Deuteronomy 18, 15. It says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, excuse me, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Now again, we have a prophecy here that's pointing to the, 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 the coming of Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus Christ coming. A number of years ago, <clears throat> retired Nassau engineer Edgar C., and I'm really not sure exactly how to pronounce the last name, Wizenot, uh, wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. <clears throat> now, the book, and, and some of you remember that. Remember? Some of you remember that. I, I was like three. But, but uh, <clears throat> anyway... You remember that, okay? And, and the book, which he, he self-published the book, by the way, and he placed the uh, expected date of the rapture between September the 11th and September 13th of 1988. And that book became a massive bestseller. By the time the end of the year was reached, there were more than 4.5 million copies that had been sold. Now, he self-published it. You need to think about that for a minute. That means that he got the profits, now, 
Wizenunt, I'm having a hard time pronouncing his name, but he was certain that he had the right date. I mean, he was so certain that he made this statement. He said, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah, 1988. He's basically saying that that particular uh, festival or feast, that's when it's going to ta- ta- uh, take place. That's when Christ is coming back. But interestingly, only if the Bible's in error am I wrong. Wow, that's something, isn't it? Now, nonetheless, later books that he, he, he did come out with some later books, and he predicted that the rapture would be in 1989. He figured he was a year off. He also published another book that the rapture uh, would be in 1993. And then he, he even did another one in, for 1994. Now, of course, he didn't sell quite as many copies as the first one, but he just kept right on making those predictions, despite the fact that the Bible's pretty clear that we really aren't going to know the date or the time when Christ returns. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see that Christ's first appearance or his first coming would be, uh, was prophesied. Now, we know that almost 2,000, a little over 2,000 years ago now, that he did arrive on this celestial ball. That, of course, as a result of the supernatural conception, the Lord Jesus Christ came forth. He was all God, all man. And we know that he lived a perfect, sinless life. He died, was buried, and he rose again. The Bible tells us that at that point, He ultimately spent some time with the disciples and he ascended back to the Father. We know that at that point the church age kicked off. We understand that grace through faith has has completely uh, settled our salvation. We know that things now are moving in that direction and, and we're waiting for the return of Christ now. So we have... The, 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 the uh, cross of Christ, we have the burial and the resurrection. We've got the ascension of Jesus Christ. And he lets us know that he's coming back. And there we find, here at the end of the church age, the rapture of the church. Of course, we know that once the rapture takes place, uh, at some point following the rapture, the, the tribulation will kick off. There'll be seven years. We understand it's divided into two halves, three and a half years tribulation, the other three and a half years, uh, uh, you know, uh, even worse, if you will, great tribulation, he says. And then we know that Christ again will return, and we often refer to that as his revelation. We have the rapture that takes place after the church age, the tribulation's taking place on earth, in heaven's the judgment seat of Christ. At the end of the seven years, we have the revelation, the second coming of Christ. Now again, he comes in the clouds here after the, uh, after the, the church age. He returns all the way to the earth, the second coming. Now, his second coming is in two stages, then you know. It's in the, the aspect of in the clouds, but then also to the earth. So it's the rapture and the revelation. Now, it's, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish between the two because they are part of one return or the second coming of Christ. 
So it makes it complicated at times when we look at Scripture. However, we know as a church that we're waiting for the day, as we sang about just a little bit ago, the choir did, that Christ is coming back and he's going to return. Now, I want you to realize that the next big event on God's celestial calendar then is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the next biggie. That's the next thing that's going to transpire and take place that we're all looking forward to is the return of Jesus Christ. Take your Bible, look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please. I want to note the three top, basically, passages, the ones that you probably are most familiar with. And if you're not, these are the three that probably will be easiest to remember and help you as you address and deal with the return of Christ or the rapture of the church In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we see the first and probably the most definitive. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, we'll read through verse 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brother, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we do. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That means we'll not go before them. They'll be resurrected, then we'll be raptured. Now it'll happen like that. It's not something like, well, we're waiting on them to get all out of there. Some of you are moving kind of slow out of the graves. No, it won't be like that. Boom, rapture. I mean, at the moment the Lord blows that trumpet, the dead in Christ are rising, and we are going right there after them. He goes on to say, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. All the way back in Genesis, we are given a prophecy speaking of the the first coming of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied, it was fulfilled. May I say that Jesus Christ has once again promised to return the second time. And in this particular case, you're going to see that he's promised to come back to receive you and I unto himself. Look if you would in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now. Another passage that addresses and deals with this fact or this fact of the rapture. Now again, there are those that don't necessarily believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Well, that's to their chagrin, and and I feel bad for them. I'm glad that I, from Scripture, recognize that I will not have to go through the tribulation at all. I'm so glad that I'm going to be spared that. I'm going to be a lot like Enoch was, translated prior to the flood. I'll be taken out prior to the tribulation. You want to travel through it, then you make arrangements with God. Because if you're in the family of God and you're a child of God, then guess what? You're going to be taken whether you want to be or not. I'll watch from on high instead of down here on earth. You know what I mean? Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I shew you a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I shew you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, 
For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Take your Bible, look over John chapter 14. In the book of Genesis, it was prophesied that Jesus Christ would come the first time, and he did. But we are being told over and over again that he's going to return again. He's coming back. John chapter 14, the disciples are discouraged. They're down in the mouth. They're rather upset for fear of losing the Lord Jesus. What's going to happen to us? What's going to transpire? Aren't you going to establish the kingdom? Why aren't you going to put it in place? I mean, what's going on? How could you possibly go to Jerusalem and die if you're going to set up and establish a kingdom? So they're very, very discouraged and down and troubled. Notice what he says. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The disciples truly expected Christ And understandably so, based on the prophecies that they were aware of at the time. Remember, the New Testament had not been written yet. And so as all they knew were the Old Testament prophecies, as we look over time and we consider and look at the prophets, we can see the prophet looking out over over, uh, the the, uh, uh, scope of human history or the scope of, of, of earth's history, and they're seeing the prophecies that are being shared with them. Can I tell you that there's a valley in the midst of their vision, and it's called the church age. They could not see the church age through prophecy. They missed it completely. So it's not, it's not that uh, strange when the disciples say to him in chapter 1, verse 6 of Acts, when are you going to set up the kingdom? When are you going to take your rightful place on the throne? When are you going to finally get rid of these Romans and this government that's corrupt and establish a righteous government and rule and reign and us right beside you? I think they were really more concerned about that. But may I say that that they were right in thinking that to some degree. They had missed the fact that there was going to be a gulf between the time that Christ came the first time and the time he came the second. They mixed up the comings. They saw one coming, if you will. They could not see that it was here and then split by a whole valley of church age and then the second coming. They missed it. And it's understandable. But we, looking back, can see all of it. We can put it all together. And we know, according to the passages that we've just read and others in Scripture, that Jesus Christ is coming back again. We know this. So tonight, because he's coming back, I want to share three things that we need to do then. Three basic things. So let's have a word of prayer, and I want to share those with you tonight. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership. We pray that you'll speak to our hearts through your word. Encourage us from the scriptures. Now, Lord, we love you. We need you. May your Holy Spirit do his work in our heart and lives. We'll thank you for it. We'll praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Because he's coming back, we need to do a few things. Number one, we need to keep our eyes on the sky. We need to keep our eyes on the sky. What we're talking about is perspective. 
You know, a mother was explaining to her little girl the death of her father. The mother said to her, you know, God has sent for your father, and he'll send for us. But I don't know just when. Finally, the little girl said, if we don't know just when God's going to send for us, don't you think we had better pack up and get ready to go? God might send when we're not ready. In Titus chapter 2, the Bible says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The admonition is that you and I as believers are to be prepared and ready to go. We need to keep our eyes upward. We need to be looking heavenward. We need to be keeping our eyes on the sky because Jesus Christ is coming again. The problem is is when we get our eyes focused on the here and now and we lose sight of the eternity and we lose sight of Christ and his return. We've got to live our lives in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Got to keep our eyes on the sky. Our perspective needs to be upward, not outward. It needs to be vertical, not horizontal. Our focus is heaven-bound, not earth-bound. It's an eternal mindset and not a temporal one that we must maintain. Matthew chapter 24, verse 44 says, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Someone says, I know the context of that passage. It's the second coming. Exactly. I realize that it points to that day after, during that tribulation period. And there he's, they're preparing. He's preparing to return. But may I say again, the comings are often meshed together. Even as he's going to return, and we're not going to know that return, so to speak, specifically, we don't know exactly when he's going to return for us. You and I need to be ready when he comes. We need to be ready when he, brings, when he comes down on that cloud in the sky and we meet him in the air. We've got to be prepared. We have to be ready. We need to be packing and ready to go. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Once again, our perspective. In light of his return, because he's coming back, We need to keep our eyes on the sky. Number two, because he's coming back, we need to keep our feet on the foundation. We need to keep our feet on the foundation. That has to do or points to our priorities. Our priorities. On December, uh, in December 2001, the Leaning Tower of Pisa was finally reopened to the public. It had been closed for almost 12 years. It was 11 years, a little over 11 years, almost 12. During that time, engineers completed a $27 million renovation project. It was designed to stabilize the tower. Of course, you know the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It doesn't stand up straight. It leans. That's why it's called that. They were very concerned. They were very uh, uh, weary that it might even collapse and fall. Not so much because of the danger even to those around, but just because it's such a fixture there and it was such, so, so historical, they wanted to keep it safe. So they removed 110 uh, tons of, of uh, yeah, 110 tons of dirt and reduced its famous lean by about 16 inches. Now that doesn't sound like a whole lot, does it? But why was that necessary? Again, it's because it just continued to tilt further and further and further away from vertical over the past hundreds of years. Past hundreds of years. Finally, at one point, 
this tower that was 185 feet was 17 feet farther south than the bottom. So the top leaned 17 feet out of vertical. I mean, that, that's a pretty good lean. That's what you call leaning. They, again, were so concerned about the collapse, they decided to deal with it. Now, let me ask you, what was the problem with the tower? I mean, was it bad design? I mean, was it, was it I mean, a poor workmanship, maybe? Possibly an inferior grade of marble being used? The materials just weren't strong, they weren't good, they weren't right? No, that wasn't the problem at all. The problem was in the foundation. The foundation stones had been laid on soft ground consisting of clay, fine sand, and shells. And over time and weight, that, 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 that tower began to lean. There was, the foundation wasn't sturdy. The foundation wasn't solid. And as a result of that, that tower began to lean. And if they would have continued to allow it to lean, it would have ultimately fell. It would have no longer stood, but instead it would have collapsed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible says, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. I wonder, what are you and I building our lives and our futures on tonight? I know we're here tonight and someone says, well, you're preaching to the, to the choir. But let me tell you, even then we need to be very careful and very aware of what we're building on. I mean, Jesus Christ is coming again, and we need to keep our feet on the foundation. It is so easy today to get off course and off track. It's so easy to step off the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and to start planting our feet on sinking sand. But in light of his return, we must, it is imperative that we keep our feet on the foundation. He's coming back. Do you want to... Do you want him to catch you in quicksand? I'm glad my salvation's secure because I can't imagine being planted in the sand of this world, my feet being so entrenched in this world that when he came, I wouldn't be able to get free of it. But thank God my salvation is by grace through faith. I'm so glad that it's not dependent on me. But my friend, it's time we wake up and realize we need to keep our feet on a solid foundation because he's coming back. It's interesting, too, as you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, you find a, a, an, un, un, an, an unbelievable parallel to another important piece of the Christian life. See, when we talk about Christ as the foundation, it's important to realize that Christ is also the Word of God. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word. But hold on, in verse 14, it defines this word very clearly for us. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I don't think there's any question who that is. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I guess if I could say it this way, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is the foundation, the only true foundation, and in light of the fact that he is the word of God, it's very vital that we build our lives on Jesus Christ, but it is equally vital because the Word is Christ that we build our lives on the Word of God. You can't build your life on Jesus Christ. You say, I want to know what it means to build my life on a firm foundation on Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what it means. 
It means building your life on none other than this blessed book, the Word of God. Allowing its precepts, its promises, its commands to to be your life. To allow them to truly uh, affect your daily walk. To to build on these truths. Not to build on your own, uh, own feelings or your own concept of truth, but on his truth, the word of God. Let the Bible be your guide, so to speak. Not your conscience, not your heart, but the word of God. Build on the word of God. Why? Because he's coming back. Do you know what you're going to answer for? You're going to answer for how you lived your life in respect to the word of God. God's going to lay out the, the, the word of God and he's going to look at your life in comparison and he's going to say, hey, Mark O'Donnell, hey, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, I'm looking at my word and I'm looking at the commands and the precepts that I've given you and I'm comparing your life and your, your, wis- uh, your uh, obedience to them and you know what? I'm seeing if they're measuring up, adding up. That's how he's going to judge us. How are you doing when it comes to building your life on the word of God? Planting your feet firmly on the Word of God. May I say we must do that. Why? Because He's coming back. Hey, listen, it's not a will He come back or might He come back? Could He come back? No, He is coming back. And my question to, to you and I today really is this. Will He find us fixed firmly on the Word of God, living our life in accordance to the Scriptures, being obedient to His Word? Because, boy, when he comes back, I've got to believe every one of us will regret it if we're not. Because he's coming back, we need to keep our eyes on the sky. We need to keep our feet on the foundation. We also need to keep our hand to the plow. We've got to keep our hand to the plow. Now, those last two we talked about, keeping our eye on the sky is perspective. It's, it's keeping an upward look, a vertical look, not a horizontal one. Having the, a proper perspective. And then we see our fa- feet on a foundation. Having the right priorities in our life. Placing the word of God where it belongs in our life, first in our life. Amen. But then we have here our hands to the plow. Addressing our purpose for existing now. Jesus Christ saved our soul, yes, and we are to bring glory to him according to Revelation chapter 4, uh, verse 11. But my friend, I want you to know that you don't bring glory to God in your life if you're not obedient to the word and you're not working in the work of Christ. So it says, well, you're saying you have to work to be right with God and have favor with God? No, you have to be obedient to the word of God. And may I say the Bible tells us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So you tell me what that means. If we could define the work of the Lord today, well, how would we define that? How would you define that? What is the work of the Lord? Maybe this week would be a good week to define that statement, to go through the word of God and figure out what it means to do the work of the Lord. What's that mean, the work of the Lord? We find here in Luke 9, 62, it says, And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Man, you've started something. God began a good work in you and will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. We understand that. But my friend, if you put your hand to the plow, you have a responsibility to keep them there. You have a responsibility to keep them there. It's not God's job to tie you to the plow. 
It's your job to stay connected to the plow, to keep on working, to keep on striving, to keep on going for God. It's my responsibility to do the same thing. Jesus Christ is coming again, and we got to keep our hand on the plow and keep working and striving on his behalf. There's a world dying and going to hell. Somebody's got to step up. Somebody's got to say something. Somebody's got to do something. And God has empowered us with the person of the Holy Spirit. He's given us every tool we need to hold on to the plow, to keep on going, to strive on his behalf, to win the world for the gospel's sake. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Don't get weary in well-doing. I'll tell you what, it's not... It's not hard to grow weary when you're doing hard work. And the ministry is hard work. Living for Jesus is not always peaches and cream. It takes an element of commitment and dedication. you got to be focused and you have to be determined. Boy, I'll tell you what, it can be, it can be taxing at times. But let us not be weary in well-doing. A gentleman was visiting a certain school, and he told the class that he would give them a prize. He'd give a prize to the pupil whose desks he found in the best condition or in the, the best order when he returned. <clears throat> but when are you going to return, some of the kids asked as, they, as, he, as he, he made that statement. Well, when are you coming back? I mean, when can we expect you? And he said, I, that I cannot tell. Can't, I, I, don't, I, I can't say that for sure. A little girl who... Well, kind of noted for being pretty messy, and her desk was always disorderly and a, just, just in shambles. She kind of, kind of piped up, and she said, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm going to win that prize. And some of her friends kind of laughed and said, you? Your desk is always out of order. Your desk is always messy. You're not going to win. She said, oh, I mean to clean it the first of every week. Her friend said, yeah, but suppose he comes at the end of the week. Then I'll clean it every morning. Well, he may come at the end of the day. What are you going to do then? She thought for a moment and she said, you know what? I know what I'll do. I'll just clean it. I'll just keep it clean. I'll keep it clean all the time. May I say that we got to stay about the business of the Lord all the time? we got to stay clean ourselves and we need to stay focused and stay active in the work of God. As I said already in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the Bible says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, there's not one thing you're going to do for Jesus Christ here on this earth that will not be remembered and be rewarded one day in heaven if you did it with the right spirit and the right attitude. Boy, don't, don't get to the place where you get weary and well-doing. Don't want to give up on your Christian life. Don't give up on reading your Bible and praying. Don't give up on serving the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're teaching or running a bus or singing in the choir or just being, standing at a door and shaking hands and a big old smile on your face. Don't get tired of that. Ladies, don't get weary of working in the nurseries and doing all you can to provide a, a peaceful atmosphere in an auditorium so that the Word of God goes out and can be effective in the hearts and lives of people. 
Boy, every aspect of the ministry, every area of the ministry, let's stay active and faithful. Let's just keep it clean all the time and keep actively striving and working toward the goal of seeing others come to Christ. During October of 1864, while General Sherman's army lay encamped in the neighborhood of Atlanta, the army of Confederate General Hood carefully passed by Sherman's army and gained his rear. That means, basically, is that they snuck around his army. And they got to the north of him. Once they got to the rear of Sherman's army, they began to destroy the railroad leading north. They burned uh, block houses and they captured small garrisons along the line. Sherman's army quickly pursued after Hood in order to save the supplies and, and, and the larger posts, the principal of which was located at Altoona Pass. It was right where the railroad actually passed by. General Course of Illinois, <clears throat> he was stationed there with a brigade of troops, and they were composed of Minnesota and Illinois regiments. There was about 1,500 troops A million and a half of rations were stored there. And of course, that made it vitally important that the supplies be defended. So we have General Hood and the armies approaching. We have General Course now guarding these rations. 6,000 men under command of a man by the name of General French, however, was detailed by Hood to attack and to take position. They were completely surrounded and they were ordered to surrender. Now, Course refused. And because he refused to surrender, of course, the battle ensued. It was on. He and his men were slowly driven, however, into a small fort upon, up on top of a hill. A number of the men had already died and had fallen. The outcome was obvious. Defeat. There was no way. They were going to win. No way they could prevail. At that moment, an officer caught sight of a white signal flag. Far away across the valley, it waved. About 15 miles at distance. It was on top of Kennesaw Mountain. The signal was answered. And soon the message was waved across from mountain to mountain. Hold the fort. I am coming, W.T. Sherman. Cheers went up and every man was encouraged to hold the fort, to keep on fighting. The enemy gave them all they had and I mean they just fired every, everything they had at them. It killed or wounded more than half of the men and even their captain died. They held the fort for three hours until the advance guard of Sherman's army came up. And General French was obliged to retreat. It seemed as though there was no hope. It would have been very easy to run up the white flag themselves. It could have been easy to give up and quit at that point. What's the point of fighting a battle you just can't win? But boy, when they saw that Sherman was there and he said, Hold the fort, I'm coming. Hold the fort, I'm coming. They said, we can do this. 
And they rallied the troops and they fought him off for three more hours. And they held the ground and they kept those provisions. And I say that Jesus cries out today, I'm coming. Don't quit now. Don't surrender to Satan. Don't give up on the word of God. Don't quit on me. I'm coming back. And I want to encourage you to stand for Jesus Christ. To continue to fight. To not lay down the word of God. Don't lay down your standards. Don't lay down your beliefs. Don't lay down and give up to Satan. Don't surrender. Hold that fort. Keep fighting. Because he's coming back. Keep our eyes on the sky. Keep our feet on the ground or the foundation. And keep our hand to the plow. Why? Because he's coming back. He's coming back. Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for <clears throat> being our